Hello and welcome to another episode of the AABIP Podcasts. My name is Udit Chada. I'm an assistant professor at the Icon School of Medicine in New York. So today we are very fortunate to have with us Vivek Murthy. Vivek is an assistant professor at NYU and he is the associate director of interventional pulmonology there and a very, very smart colleague of ours. Uh, Vivek, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Udit, thanks for having me and that sounded sarcastic. Not at all. Absolutely not at all. Do you, do you have any relevant conflicts of interest to uh, disclose uh, regarding the topic we're going to discuss today, Vivek? Uh, no, I don't think I do. No. Okay. So today's topic is going to be discussing our approach to mesothelioma. It's not something we commonly uh, are discussed in various interventional pulmonary forums, but I would love to pick your brains and see how you approach these difficult cases. And then I have to clarify that the views that are going to be expressed on this podcast are those of Vivek and mine and uh, not necessarily endorsed by the AAPIP. All right, let's dive into the episode then, Vivek. What are the risk factors for mesothelioma? Basically, when you have a patient with a pleural effusion, when should we start thinking that mesothelioma is in the differential diagnosis? Uh, well, I, I think it always has to be considered. You know, the, the um, peak incidence of mesothelioma reported in the United States was in the early 1990s. Uh, and that's, of course, reflective of environmental asbestos exposure and efforts in the 1970s to reduce that exposure. So while the incidence has declined, I, I think that uh, particularly for our older patients over age 50, uh, those are unilateral effusions, um, it, it has to be considered every time as a possible, uh, as a possibility. Um, certainly, you know, patients with uh, very bulky pleural disease and, and uh, bulky pleural nodularity and ultrasound, I think that that suspicion has to be even a little higher, just given the known uh, behavior of mesothelioma, the local progression and, uh, and local spread. Um, but, you know, it's, it's always on our differential, for sure. You know, the, the key is a really, really detailed history and a very detailed history for any possibility of asbestos exposure. Um, given the decline in incidence, I think this is not something that is a routine part of our history taking, but as interventional pulmonologists and pulmonologists, I think it really needs to be. When we think about environmental exposures with a particular association with asbestosis and also with mesothelioma, we have to think about those with uh, naval experience or uh, those involved in shipbuilding, railway construction. A process of, of, uh, of decontamination with asbestos is generally well, um, well regulated but building demolition is less so. And so those involved in demolition and construction have to be considered. Uh, folks who have uh, exposure to the auto industry, and in particular, those who are involved in brake manufacturing and brake installation, uh, since um, many particularly older brake pads uh, did have uh, asbestos as a major component. Uh, those are some of the things that, that I think about historically and, and that I ask my patients about when I'm considering a diagnosis of, uh, of, of mesothelioma. World Trade Center exposure has come up frequently as a question about the possibility of asbestos exposure. Uh, we're now uh, 20 years out from uh, the 9-11 attacks, and so far there are about 400 known cases of asbestosis uh, from exposure to, uh, to the dust cloud. Um, how many of those cases will translate to true mesothelioma? You know, we're at the very start of the phase where clinically relevant and uh, uh, clinically presenting mesothelioma can be, uh, can be noted. So there's a question about how many of those cases will really translate to mesothelioma moving forward, but it is definitely part of our, our history intake. All right. So Vivek, you have a patient who has uh, an effusion. You suspect that this could be mesothelioma based on the CAT scan or based on uh, the history in general. So what do you quote as your yield for your initial thoracentesis? Or are you even doing a thoracentesis uh, to start off on these patients? 
Yeah. So, you know, um, with, with any thoracentesis where we're concerned about malignancy, um, yield is obviously the, the, the first question. We don't want to do an unnecessary thoracentesis if we can avoid it um, because we know about the risk of potential for tract metastasis, particularly with, with mesothelioma. So the reported diagnostic yield is variable for malignant pleural mesothelioma, but for thoracentesis, it's around 26% in uh, kind of looking at averages from different studies. Um, if you think about additional diagnostic measures like closed pleural biopsy, which is done pretty rarely, I think, uh, nowadays uh, for the purpose of you know, evaluating malignancy, closed pleural biopsy has a, uh, a diagnostic yield of around 40%. And contrast those to thoracoscopy, which has a yield of 98%. Um, the, the yield for these less invasive uh, tests is, is clearly um, has to be questioned um, in light of the risk involved in even accessing the pleural space when mesothelioma is high on the differential. So in general, I guess the yield of a thoracentesis is low, as low as 5%, right, in some studies, mainly because yes. you need the cells to, to be shed into the pleural fluid to detect them on cytology. And if you have a sarcomatoid mesothelioma, that's not going to happen. If you have an epithelioid mesothelioma and, you know, the cells are caught up in some fibrous stroma, that's not going to happen. So it, it's really hard to, you know, convincingly get a diagnosis. And a lot of this depends on your pathologist as well, I'm sure. So it, do you communicate directly with your pathologist, you know, asking them specifically to check for BAP1 or MTAP loss when you're suspecting mesothelioma? Because cytologically, it's very hard to distinguish atypical mesothelial cells from mesothelioma. Absolutely. And I think that um, the point of multidisciplinary review is really key with mesothelioma because it is such a rare entity um, nowadays. Um, any suspected case of mesothelioma is discussed at our tumor board, um, even before we consider a biopsy, actually, uh, just because the need for a multidisciplinary approach is so important. So um, as you mentioned, BAP1, CDK, and 2A, all these are features that um, the pathologist needs to know going into their evaluation so that tissue can be preserved and used, um, used appropriately. And uh, the correct immunohistochemical stains can be done on relatively limited tissue. Having said that, you know, even if a diagnosis of mesothelioma can be obtained from pleural fluid, the question about resectability has to be at the front of our minds. And um, the diagnosis by pleural fluid and cytology alone is generally not recommended prior to proceeding with surgical resection. More definitive diagnosis is generally needed. And so the question about thoracentesis and its adequacy, um, I think, has to take into account not only can we establish a diagnosis, but is this going to be sufficient to inform next steps in management and is it worth the potential risk to the patient? So in truly high-risk cases, um, we usually present them at our tumor board before we do any kind of biopsy or sampling. So if you really suspect, like in a truly high-risk case, you really suspect mesothelioma, are you even wasting time with the thoracentesis? Yeah, so uh, the short answer is often yes, only because uh, of the greater statistical likelihood that what we're looking at is a atypical or complex presentation of a, for example, non-small cell lung cancer, because the demographic factors uh, often overlap uh, between patients at risk of, of lung cancer and, uh, and mesothelioma. So uh, yes is the short answer. However, this is not the kind of patient for whom I would do repeat thoracentesis expecting a yield for non-small cell. You know, when our, when our concern is, is high, we might do one thoracentesis in our clinic, uh, but beyond that, we're really thinking, um, you know, of pursuing more invasive approach, including medical or surgical thoracoscopy. So in cases that may be resectable, again, we know this is controversial, and you discussed this in your MDD forum, are these patients going to you for a pleuroscopy or are they going to a thoracic surgeon for a VAT straight up for a diagnostic plus minus therapeutic procedure uh, in one go? 
Yeah, in many ways, our approach is not so different from non-small cell lung cancer, and that non-invasive staging is is um, our our first approach. And um, you know, amongst the options between uh, CT, PET, and MRI, you know, each is adding some other element of uh, of information. Uh, MRI very useful for identifying uh, preservation of fat and tissue planes, uh, for identifying vascular invasion, mediastinal invasion, not always very well characterized on CT in these cases. But PET is really um, is really key here because very often uh, EBUS uh, and concurrent pleural biopsy uh, or sequential pleural biopsy, it has to be considered. It's not enough to just know a diagnosis of, for example, sarcomatoid mesothelioma. We also need to stage the mediastinum very often in these cases. So um, the answer to your question is, based on the PET is really how we decide what the best diagnostic and staging approach is going to be. If we're able to get high quality core needle biopsies from you know, obvious uh, FDG avid mediastinal adenopathy, that might be sufficient rather than violating the pleural space. So once we have the PET, if it does seem like relatively localized disease, um, I think that practices really vary by institution, uh, by operator experience. And I think that's another really, really important factor is that um, control of the pleural space and subcutaneous tissue uh, is, is so important in the setting of mesothelioma. And the complexity of that space is such that um, you know, we have many options available to us as interventional pulmonologists, but I think we need to respect that a truly complex pleural space, we want to have all therapeutic options available in the event that we encounter bleeding or, or other complications. So there isn't one answer to say that every case is going for thoracoscopy by an interventional pulmonologist versus a surgeon. It really, really depends on the ultrasound and other imaging factors of the pleural space and the need for pleural uh, access at all. And let's say you do decide to proceed with a pleuroscopy. Is your approach to a patient with mesothelioma slightly different to, let's say, a general easy pleuroscopy in someone who has metastatic lung cancer? I, I can't say it's very different um, because really in all cases, we are taking a great effort to um, choose the best spot based on ultrasound to avoid pleural nodularity. We want to be in a position to see and biopsy it, not to necessarily go through that with our trocar. So we are still taking care to be sure that there is adequate, not only space for access, but adequate space for um, for uh, appropriate deflation of the ipsilateral lung, for thorough inspection of the pleural space. Um, and if it's a case where we suspect significant trapped lung or a thick visceral pleural peel, um, you know, we're the first to say, this is a case that might be better handled by a surgeon if we do need to access the pleura. But when we have a case where we have relatively mobile lung, where we seem to have space in order to access, it's really not too different uh, except that our site selection definitely takes into account the um, the um, likelihood of parietal pleural involvement at that area. And a comment on your biopsy technique? So, you know, we, we do all, at, at our institution, we do all of our biopsies using rigid thoracoscopy. That's not the case at other institutions where there may be a mix of semi-rigid and rigid or, or exclusively the use of semi-rigid thoracoscopy. Um, both of these modalities are very, very comparable when you get a biopsy of adequate size. Um, of course, that is the, the uh, main concern with semi-rigid thoracoscopies often because we're using flexible forceps uh, that the biopsies are, are relatively small. Um, adequate histologic evaluation really requires relatively deep biopsy specimens um, to not only identify um, the histologic subtype, but to evaluate tissue plane involvement. So we, we always do rigid thoracoscopy and we try to get um, relatively deep bites along the rib, uh, along the superior margin of the rib um, when we're concerned about mesothelioma. Awesome. So uh, you mentioned the concern of violating the pleural space. Now, we know that mesothelioma can 
track along a port site or, or any other site of invasion into the pleural space uh, to the subcute tissue. So are we doing prophylactic radiation or are we beyond the days of prophylactic uh, radiation to a port site? Yeah, so if you casually read the literature, you'll see um, papers all, o- all over the place. You know, there, there are um, uh, some positive pro- small prospective studies exploring the use of uh, a prophylactic radiotherapy after uh, a pleural axis in the setting of mesothelioma. There are randomized controlled trials looking at this. So uh, depending on the study you look at, you might get a different answer. However, multiple randomized controlled trials have now demonstrated that not only is there uh, not a clear benefit to it, actually the SMART trial, which investigated the role of radiotherapy in, in the management of mesothelioma, found a higher rate of symptomatic tract metastasis uh, in patients receiving prophylactic RT versus their control group. So they had a rate of 16% of tract metastasis in patients who uh, had surgery, got radiation afterwards, versus those who had surgery and just were observed, which was a 9% rate. So I think the SMART trial was really the, the most definitive um, one to answer the question, uh, and we're not really pursuing that for our patients. However, you know, we do know uh, that the likelihood is, is high. So for example, in patients getting an indwelling pleural catheter, one study found a 25% rate of tract metastasis over the course of um, uh, the, the patient's illness. So um, knowing that, I think it's important to just be vigilant. And we know that treatment after it's identified is generally pretty effective with radiotherapy. So as long as we're vigilant, both in evaluating our imaging, asking patients to check their port sites for uh, possibility of, of metastasis and, uh, and that we're examining every time we see the patient um, and we're proactive, I think that um, treatment after identification early is, is the better approach. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Vivek. So just in general, in, in mesothelioma, is there still a role for extrapleural pneumonectomy or pleurectomy decortications? Or I, I know every case is dis- discussed in an MDD format and all these treatments are highly individualized. But in general, are these treatments still being pursued or, or is there no role for these uh, surgical options right now? So I think as, as you correctly pointed out, there isn't one answer. Um, overall survival benefit from surgery remains very controversial. And in randomized trials, um, the benefit has really been only there for patients who are also able to tolerate chemotherapy. So there's a, there's a huge bias in who's really going to benefit from this. Um, but patient selection is, is really um, uh, the most important thing. You know, we know that patient outcomes, for example, um, for, for those who undergo surgery are worse for people who are over 50, who are male, uh, who um, have leukocytosis. I mean, I'm basically describing the majority of patients who have mesothelioma as, as we are identifying them currently. So, you know, there are relatively few patients who are considered good surgical candidates. Um, and extrapleural pneumonectomy is amongst the options in patients who, who happen to be good candidates. But, you know, there, there, are, um, uh, there are other approaches, including pleurectomy with decortication, um, and uh, concurrent or uh, I should say neoadjuvant or adjuvant radiotherapy. So th- the combinations of approaches are so individualized that there isn't one definite answer to whether EPP is the, is the correct approach for everybody. But I will just emphasize that a definite overall survival benefit um, for surgery alone has never been demonstrated. Uh, and so that, that, has to be, um, that has to be really, I think, kept in mind. And then, so majority of the patients do end up getting some form of chemo radiation therapy, right? That's right. And what, what's the role for immunotherapy then? 
So immunotherapy at this point remains investigational, and there are a number of studies uh, exploring the use of conventional immune checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy, uh, the use of more novel experimental therapies, including CAR T-cell therapy or cellular immunotherapy into the pleural space. But at this point, um, immunotherapy is not um, to my knowledge, a, a part of the standard of care for, for mesothelioma outside of the setting of clinical trials. And any role in, uh, or maybe in the future, of intrapleural therapies? Yeah, so I think in the, in the future or in the past, I think there's, there's been a lot of interest in intrapleural uh, therapies for mesothelioma for a number of very good reasons. You know, you have a fixed cavity that's easily accessed, can be accessed serially uh, and evaluated serially with respect to biomarkers that we kind of touched on. Um, so th there's been a lot of interest in intrapleural chemotherapy, heated chemotherapies, intrapleural immunotherapies, um, which have had variable success or no success, and some success in, in limited areas that, that are being explored prospectively at this point. So, you know, looking back, heated, heated therapy and uh, heated chemotherapies really um, didn't demonstrate a, a convincing um, benefit and not really done outside of very, very limited clinical trials. Uh, there's been a number of studies looking at intrapleural immunotherapy, including cellular immunotherapies and immunogene therapy um, that my mentor, Dan Sturman, has been extensively involved with. So um, most of these rely on generating a local immune response to generate sort of an in-situ vaccination, where by exposing tumor antigen, we uh, prime the immune system to uh, generate tumor-specific anti-tumor responses. So uh, there, there's been a number of approaches that have been used, including the use of um, thymidine, thymidine kinase gene transfection. So this is an approach where you use a vector to um, infect local tissues wherever you inject them or apply them, in this case, along the pleural space, potentially through a pleural catheter. And then um, the gene that is transmitted it, it, with a replication-deficient virus is then um, kind of used to activate a pro-drug, which is administered orally, basically creating a uh, local toxic metabolite to kill local cells. So uh, if it's done in the form of injection, you would inject a tumor, uh, and uh, that tumor tissue that's been transfected by this virus vector is now going to be sensitized to, um, to this drug that's subsequently administered, valcyclovir, gancyclovir, depending on the agent. They're, they're, they're different ones. So there is some degree of local effect, an immediate local effect, but the more exciting possibility is, does this uh, generate sufficient tumor antigen that you've now created a, a, uh, a, an opportunity for T-cell priming directed specifically at tumor, not a generic um, you know, cytokine storm, which is often a feature of some of these approaches, but uh, something that's more specific to tumor. So the safety of this has been explored in a number of studies, including a phase one study of gene-mediated cytotoxic immunotherapy for um, both malignant pleural mesothelioma and for malignant pleural fusions in general uh, in, in, the, in the study that I'm mentioning. And it's been shown to be relatively well tolerated and uh, is now actually in, in, um, in uh, further development in phase two. So th these are developments that we may be seeing moving forward, um, depending on the degree of not only durable immune response we see, but actual clinical response. Um, and you know, in the, in the trial that I mentioned, there, there were some patients who had um, had some degree of, of local control. And so there's this promise, but at this point, uh, this, this remains in the, in the realm of, of experimental therapy. 
Awesome, Vivek. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, you know, I think in the future, I'm going to have to organize like an hour-long podcast to do justice to your massive body of knowledge. <laughs> this, is, this is very good. This is fantastic. I'm sure our listeners will uh, love listening to all your knowledge pearls that you've given us during this podcast. Sure, sure. Thanks so much. Take care.